Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Christine Coe, who is an MD and a professor of dermatology and pathology at Yale University. She also authored the book, How to Improve Doctor-Patient Connection, Using Psychology to Optimize Healthcare Interactions. Christine, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Timmy. Of course. Thanks for coming on the show. And we'd like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. Okay. Well, I'm I'm a physician, as you said, but I'm also a mom. So I have two kids, one's 15 and one's 12. So I have to admit that a lot of life still is just sort of navigating the kid stuff still. But um, I'm I'm pretty much a, a very strong introvert. So I love reading books. It's something that makes me very happy. <laughs> I love it. Does the introvertness of yourself ever come out when you were like dealing with patients? Because I feel like doctors need a lot of bedside interaction, right? Yeah, you know, it's so funny, because I never really thought about, you know, my personality necessarily, and how that would kind of benefit or, you know, not benefit. I'm sorry, let me turn that off. Um, you know, what I really eventually did in my life. And I I just always wanted to be a doctor from when I was young. And I just didn't fully realize that you're right. I think it it so introvert being someone who's sort of drained by a lot of sort of, you know, social interactions versus extrovert who gets a lot of energy from it. And I recently heard another really good definition where it's like an introvert wakes up with like five gold coins and you spend a gold coin every time you kind of talk to someone, interact. So by the end of the day, you're zero or you're bankrupt versus an extrovert like gains a gold coin every time they have like this positive, you know, interaction. So I definitely feel that way. I feel depleted after clinic. And um, I mean, it's not necessarily bad. That doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy it, but I feel depleted. And one time early on, we did this Myers-Briggs at a medical conference where it was sort of like about you know, being a leader and just discovering your strengths and weaknesses. And so a lot of us did a Myers-Briggs. And so um, after doing it, they kind of had a bunch of us, there's probably a hundred of us in the room. They're like, okay, like, raise your hand. Were you an introvert and extrovert? And for extrovert, the vast majority, almost everyone in the room raised their hand. And it was kind of a big revelation to me, like, oh, exactly what you just said, that, yeah, it probably helps to be an extrovert if you're going to be facing patients you know, all day long, day after day. Yeah, for sure. No, I I completely get that. I'm an introvert myself. And I've realized oh. that like, even in like sales and business, you have to talk to people a lot. And there'll be like some networking stuff you have to go through to or talking to investors for the real estate side of things. And I love talking to people. I love having conversations with people, but it also just exhausts me. Like, I'm like, I got a good 30 minutes to an hour with you. And then after that, I'm just going to need a breather. Just give me a second. Yep. <laughs> so, um, yep. Yeah. I get it. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, hence probably the podcast, right? Because you do enjoy talking to people, but you kind of like to have a boundary around it. 
exactly. It's also funny. I really only like talking to people about certain things. Like I don't like talking about small talk, like the weather or something like that. And so when it comes to like dreams and goals and how I can help you get there, I'm there all day. But the second it stops being that conversation, and we could typically have that conversation in a pretty succinct amount of time. But when it stops being that conversation, that's when I really start to get drained. Like I'm already drained from like interacting with people. But then when it's not that conversation, I feel like I'm not getting any energy at all because it's just not, it doesn't excite me. Yeah, I, I feel you. Yeah, I get that. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, tell us a little bit more about your motivation. What really gets you up and keeps you going every day? Yeah, so I've been um, thinking a lot about, you know, my why. And I've come to realize, I think, I mean, it's changed, I think, over the course of my life so far. But these days, it's I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference for my patients one-to-one. I want to make a difference for my kids, you know, um, myself too. I'm not, you know, totally, you know, just I am, I can be very selfish for sure. I want to make a difference for um, the people around me, you know, my my family, my friends, my colleagues, um, but also more broadly, I want to make a difference in healthcare. And it's sort of, I feel silly almost saying it because it's a, a too big a goal, really, I think for one person, um, not to be doubting myself, but healthcare is just, it's enormous in the US and then, you know, every other country. And I, I don't have the hubris to think that I can take it on myself and make a change. But I really like the Margaret Mead quote that says something like never doubt the power of, you know, one or a few individuals to really make a change. So I think, you know, at least, you know, try and if it takes a lifetime, that's okay. And try to leave some sort of change behind. I love it. I love it. Well, that this is a perfect segue into your dreams and goals. Tell us about the specific changes you want to make in healthcare. What's really your vision for your life and your profession? going forward. Yeah, so I I am a doctor, a physician, and I thought I was doing a good job by my patients. You know, I never thought that I was a bad doctor. You know, I, I think most people don't think they're bad doctors, right? I mean, that's not why we, it's not why I, and I think, you know, virtually every single doctor I know, that's not why they, you know, become a doctor or why they stay being a doctor. So, there was never really a point where I thought I was not a good doctor, but really I think my attitude towards healthcare changed a lot when my son had his diagnosis. He's deaf and has something called auditory neuropathy, which is a rare diagnosis. And so I think the exact name of the diagnosis doesn't really matter. And the fact, you know, that it's deafness versus something else doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't matter to us, but what I mean is the name itself, you know, because it could be any patient, any diagnosis. And what I realized was that there was this significant period of misdiagnosis, you know, of where the healthcare system wasn't really helping my son um, or me, you know, and, and not to blame necessarily the healthcare system alone, but also not to blame myself. But, you know, he was a baby, a toddler, you know, so it, it's definitely not his fault, you know, that he was misdiagnosed. So I 
dream of patients getting better care, you know, being listened to and getting their diagnoses earlier, if that's what they really need, or really not every patient's the same. So not getting their diagnosis earlier, if that's not what they need. Um, but generally, in order for the right treatment and management plan to, you know, sort of go forward, you do need the right diagnosis. And so, you know, my son had a severe enough case of auditory neuropathy where in the end, once he was diagnosed, they said, oh, you know, he really probably can't hear anything. And so by that time when he was diagnosed, he was about two years old. And so at that time, that was a very late diagnosis of profound deafness. So, and he, and to go along with that, he had no words, you know, usually by at least age one, you know, kids have some words and by age two, they should have a lot more and he didn't. And so by the time he was finally diagnosed, they were like, well, you know, of course, one person even said to me, I thought very callously, well, your, your, your child acts like a deaf child, you know, of course, you know, and I was just sort of shocked, like, what does a deaf child act like? I mean, you know. And so yeah, it's just surprising. I think, you know, we don't, we don't know these things, you know, um, when I didn't know what a deaf child really looks like, what a deaf child sounds like, or what a deaf child may look like or may sound like. And so I was relying on the healthcare providers that I would go to, to tell me that earlier on, you know, not after he was diagnosed, tell me well, your child acts like a deaf child. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. And so you dream of patients getting better care, being listened to and getting their diagnoses when they need it. What, um, what are like the number one and number two barriers to getting patients that kind of listening ear and the correct diagnosis when they need it? Yeah, so, I mean, I could name tons of barriers, but I think in a way, the reason I think that individually we can make a difference, even as a patient or a patient advocate, you don't have to be a doctor, a physician or other healthcare provider, you know, from, so I think both sides, when you're one-to-one -one, or sometimes there's more people in the room, but to really see each other and to really hear each other and to think about, you know, what feelings are going on, you know, um, because for me on the doctor side, sometimes I realize now that I've thought about it more, you know, I'm thinking about it more, this patient seems really scared or, oh, this patient seems angry, but why would they be angry with me? You know, so maybe it's coming across as anger, but they're, they're, they're again, maybe they're really scared or maybe they are angry at the system because, you know, of X, Y, Z and, you know, and maybe rightfully so. But still that anger, especially if I take it personally, or even if I don't take it personally, but kind of don't try harder to really get at, you know, sort of the root cause, medically speaking, you know, of what's going on with them, then I'll also fail that patient. Um, and just sort of, again, you know, cyclical then that anger that the patient might be feeling. So I realized through my son's experience and my taking him to different visits over time that there's just 
one big barrier is there's just not enough time. There's not enough time to spend with one patient. Um, so we really have to maximize that time. Um, like in dermatology, off some some dermatologists only have like five minutes with a patient. Right now I have 20 minutes. Um, I'm lucky. That's like, you know, a long time. <laughs> it's not really right. 20 minutes even isn't very long. But um, you know, if you compare it to five, right? It, it's like <laughs> a million percent more, you know, relatively. Um, so I've learned that I used to hate it when patients would come in with like a list. Now I'm like, oh great, you have a list. Let me see it. And you know, really set the agenda, make sure that the patient really is talking about what, you know, they really want to talk about. And that's much easier said than done. I think um, having been on the other side when I am stressed or I am worried, it's not easy to come tell a complete stranger, you know, if it's your first time seeing that healthcare provider, you know, this is what I'm afraid of. This is what we've been through. You know, it's hard. So um, there's just, I think, needs to be more space given to we're both human in this space kind of, and let's try to trust each other and believe that we'll do our best by each other. And when I say a patient or patient advocate, like me as a mother, since my child was, you know, a baby and toddler, what I mean by best is just, you know, do really try to be honest in that time, right? So patient or patient advocate say, this this is really what I'm here for, right? or a couple things. And then the doctor will be honest, say, we can't cover all of that. So you've got to choose. And then I'll bring you back. But what is it today? And, um, and also, you know, just take the time to say, well, name an emotion, right? You seem very angry. <laughs> Tell me why. And that'll maybe get to also why they're really there if they're not really saying anything. And you know, a lot of, uh, this is not, a lot of my patient interactions before and even now, they, they're they great. You know, they don't, there's no problem with them. So I don't mean to make it seem that all interactions are so difficult. Um, but I think the more serious potentially a diagnosis is, there are a lot of emotions for sure on the patient side versus on the doctor side, they're often so used to that diagnosis that to them, it's just, it's every day, you know? Um, and so in that sense, I think the benefit of that, not that the doctor is callous, but the benefit of that is that they can say, okay, I'm used to this. I've seen now, you know, a thousand plus of this type of cancer. I can tell you what, what the future might hold, you know, because I think that's really where the fear and uncertainty comes in, you know, and if it's really like, okay, you maybe only have six months to live, you know, if it's something like that serious, that's never, you know, no one's ever going to be happy to hear that, right? But I think to be able to hear that in a safe space is better, right, than not knowing that. Um, and so that's the power of healthcare done well. And it's also right that the, 
the real difficulty of healthcare because it's hard to talk about things like that with a stranger. You know, it's even though certain serious diagnoses are routine for the doctor, it's not necessarily easy to tell a patient who you can tell is seems detached or seems angry or, you know, just, just doesn't seem to have a rapport with you yet. Right. That, that, that always is hard, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's a, I didn't know all that about the health industry. Honestly, to be transparent, I haven't seen a doctor in years, which is probably a bad thing, but (laughs) I um, need to go more often, but I didn't know that was the case. And I've heard that it's a really like, um, rigid space and there's not a lot of room for innovation. So just curious, do you have any other dreams or goals that you want to chat about before we dig a little bit deeper into that? I mean, I, I, I do like right now I'm trying to create a visual recognition app. So it's not artificial intelligence, but it's just to help patients, students, trainees, other doctors who not are not dermatologists be able to see like a bunch of different images of what is cancer and what isn't. Because I realized in talking to my patients where, you know, at the, towards the end of the visit, when I try to just give some education, um, cause mainly what I do right now is screen for skin cancer in high risk populations, people who are at high risk for skin cancer. And so it, especially if they don't have anything, I'll say, okay, well, you know, do you know what skin cancer looks like? Do you know what I want you to be looking out for? you know, and then call me, you know, if you see something and, you know, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. And definitely for the first visit, I always try to show them, you know, a couple of different pictures of skin cancer, but I realized like, and then, and they'll really pay attention, you know, they'll kind of come closer to the screen and be looking and they're like, oh, wow, like, that's what it looks like, you know, oh, that's gross or okay, you know, like, and, um, and, but I realized it's, it's so few pictures still. So I'm trying to create um, an app of pictures where it's kind of like a dating app where you just, you know, ideally it was swipe left or swipe right for cancer or not, but it might just be like click a button and just get to see a bunch of images. And then for fun, especially for students or trainees um, or other people who are interested in really being able to name it, you know, you can actually like say, oh, I think this is this type of cancer or not, you know? And so um, that's, that's one of my dreams um, as well, just to sort of get skin cancer to be more easily recognized. Sounds like that can be launched before the end of 2023. Honestly, yeah. before the end of 2022, if you're crazy, but definitely before the end of 2023. Yeah. Yeah, we're close. No, you're right. We're hoping it will be before the end of this year because um, our here at Yale, our dermatology medical student course is in January. So I'm hoping that they'll be able to beta test it. There we go. There we yeah. go. Well, awesome. So we got getting patients better care have them be listened to, getting their diagnoses when they need it, kind of just helping doctors and patients connect on a human level. And then we also have creating a visual recognition app to help people see what is cancer and what isn't cancer. You got got any others that you want to add on to that? Oh, I mean, I could go. (laughs) Um, Well, another one of my um, goals is um, people don't actually really know what cochlear implants look like. My son has bilateral cochlear implants. And um, I, I, to be honest, I, I'm a physician. I didn't know what they looked like. You know, I hadn't seen anyone with them. So um, hopefully a picture book will be coming out next year. That is, it's just a, you know, story, like a story of a, a little boy who shares with his mom what it's like to be able to turn sound on and off. 
And that's what the picture book is about. And so my goals with that is one, to try to normalize, right? In a way, you know, get people to recognize what cochlear implants are. They're not really the same thing as hearing aids at all. And um, because we, you know, he's, my son is stared at a lot when we go places that, that he's not familiar, like at school, everyone's used to him now, you know, um, but if we go, you know, to a different city or, you know, just a grocery store, you know, sometimes people are staring, they, they don't know what it is. And it's not mean, it's not a mean type of staring. They're just, they're like, what's on that kid's head. And sometimes people will ask me. And the first thing they always assume is that it's like Bluetooth technology that he's just like gaming, you know, while he's <laughs> walking around or something or listening to music or, you know, it's like some kind of weird headphone and it, and it's not. And so, um, I don't mind when people ask me, I, I think it's, it's good to be curious. Um, and, um, and it's, it, I don't think it, to me, it's not rude. Um, but I think it would be nice for him and for other users of cochlear implants, especially if they're kids and they don't feel comfortable for people to ask them, then it's, it's nice if people just would recognize them. So that's the purpose of the picture book. I love it. You're gonna have a busy 2023. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. You got any other dreams or goals that you want to tack on? Um, I guess I'll stop there for now. <laughs> what? No. Okay. Give us one or two more. One or two more. Um, okay. Well, I, um, I mean, I, I definitely want my kids to be, you know, have a passion, you know, to, to develop a passion. They're young still, I think. So, um, my daughter's 15, my son is 12. So, um, you know, it, it's okay, but I don't want them to, I believe still, I might change my mind, but I believe still that having a passion helps give life meaning, you know, and, and makes you happy, you know, or that happy I've heard recently too, that happy is actually a verb, you know, it's not like something that you get. Right. And, you know, to happy as a verb, you know, you kind of have to be ideally pursuing something meaningful to you. Yeah. So they're both in school still, you know, they, they kind of have like a set life in terms of, okay, you go to school up and up through high school at least, you know, and, and they both know that I would like them to go to college for sure. So I think their life is kind of planned out at least through college. And then I hope that they start planning it themselves and just, you know, pursue five dreams of their own, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. I love it. I love it. Um, have they talked to you about any passions that they may have uh, for future life? Yeah, my daughter never was really like, you know, like, I want to be a ballerina or a gymnast. Even. You know, she was never really that kind of kid. Um, and so she's consistent. She's she's never my son was very much, you know, like like that kind of kid who'd be like, Oh, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. You know, I want to be a professional soccer player. You know, he, he's had different, you know, sort of named desires, you know, from when he's like even a toddler. Um, now I think he's more unsure, you know, as a 12 year old. And so I just would hope that they, um, have enough experiences through school and through reading books and, you know, watching movies, TV, you know, to, to just get a broader idea of the world than I had and know that, you know, like 
lots of different paths are are open. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Well, what are the top one to two skills that you need to develop as a person right now to make these dreams come to fruition, whether it be the picture book, the visual recognition app, or preferably getting patients to better care by helping doctors and patients connect on that human level? What skills do you need to make those dreams come true? Well, I think that one skill that has really been helping me is emotional intelligence. Um, to just really be aware of my long-term goal in a given situation, as well as a short-term goal, you know, like one short-term goal would be just to control myself, right. And not just fly off the handle or, you know, something like that. So I think that's been really helpful to be self-aware and because I've, I think I believe or not believe, but I've come to realize more and more that I can really only control myself. Um, and even then sometimes I can't control myself, but I really can't control someone else. You know, I can't really control someone else's behavior, even if they're very close to me. Right. And and especially if they're very close to me, maybe I really should not be trying to control them, but I can set my boundaries and control my responses so that they're, you know, as optimal as they can be. And of course, I'm going to fail because I'm human, you know, I'm only human, and I'm not perfect by any means. But I think really to be conscious of my own self, how much energy I have, um, what outcome I want from a certain situation is has been important and helpful to me. Gotcha. Gotcha. So emotional intelligence is the skill. That is a good skill. Yeah. I, think I read somewhere, maybe it was an emotional intelligence 2.0 of like top executives, like people who like get up the ranks need that emotional intelligence to lead because yeah. you don't have that emotional intelligence. It's hard to understand people. And if you can't understand people, it's going to be hard to lead them. So, yeah, no, exactly. you know, I mean, I, I'm really interested in emotional intelligence. There's lots of books. I've read that one um, as well. I agree. It's a good one. I think because I, the way that I grew up, we never really talked about emotions at all. And um, in medicine, we really don't talk about emotions at all, or at least traditionally, I was never taught to. It's like leave, you know, Dr. Osler, famous, very well-respected medicine doctor even said, oh, doctor, you know, you should be leaving emotions out of it, you know? Um, but I'm realizing more and more emotions are are part of what actually really makes life worth living, you know? Um, so, you know, we shouldn't ignore them and, and no emotion actually, I'm, I'm learning to accept this. Um, I find this, this hard, but I think no emotion is actually bad, you know? So if I reframe it that, okay, I'm angry right now. Like I used to think anger was really bad, you know? Um, lately I've been thinking more about shame feeling embarrassed or shy or ashamed. Um, Cause I didn't even realize that shyness, embarrassment are in the same family as shame. Um, but having realized that I was like, oh yeah, like I've been shy my whole life. And the way that it was recently explained to me by um, another physician named Will Bynum who researches shame and medical learners, he's at Duke University. What he said is one way you can define shame 
is that there's a standard or a norm. And if you feel that you're falling short of that norm, then you will tend to feel ashamed, you know, at, to varying levels, right? So, you know, um, if, you know, the standard is, oh, everyone can easily talk to, you know, just do small talk, right? At like a little cocktail party. And I feel, you know, not like this is not easy, right? I could feel ashamed about that too, right? And that can also sort of come from shyness or being introverted. You know, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily an indictment against myself, you know, um, that I feel shy or embarrassed or even ashamed that I can't easily like, you know, converse in small talk, but I, I could, you know? And so I realized with talking to Will about shame that, um, when I think about my life in that sense and what norms have there been throughout my life, that I may have at, you know, different times along the way felt like I'm not meeting. There's been just a ton of shame in my life. And it's been really freeing, I think, to think about that and just, okay, it was all natural. You know, it was just, it was just an emotion. And I still feel that emotion of shame. And as he puts it, it's just a signpost. It's just data. So I can process it and either do something about it or just let it go or you know just table it for later you know so that's been sort of really eye-opening I like that I like that kind of mental frame on shame and just emotion in general especially because like when I I'm big on helping people take that next step towards their life right and so when people come to me and I'm, I'm really trying to figure out like that like thing that like makes people decide to change. And it's so different for everybody. It's so unique to the individual, but I like that mental model because when you think about like data adding up, it's like, if there's one data point, it may not be enough to make a decision. But when there are a lot of data points of like shame and you were tabling it and you were tabling it, but now it's like you've tabled too much to just ignore. It's like, okay, maybe now it's time to change. And so I kind of, cause I think that's how it happens for a lot of people. It's a lot of small stuff that builds up. And then one day they're just like, no more. Yes. So they'll switch something. So I like that a lot. Um, yeah. Well, awesome. What are the highest impact daily actions you can take right now to tick the needle forward towards your dreams and goals? Yeah. Daily actions. Um, I think, one big thing is just trying to trying to be more self-aware, trying to to take a little bit more time for myself in any given moment or, you know, an hour or, you know, whole day, just to make sure that I have spent time on myself, whether just mentally or, you know, as your question sort of more broadly implies, spending time towards the goals that I'm working for. So I think that it sounds simple, you know, it sounds kind of Mickey Mouse, but I think it's actually, it's it's hard for me to do. I think, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. It's hard to make time for yourself. I think, especially when maybe like I have a job and I'm a mom as well, you know, so there's work stuff I have to do. There's home stuff I have to do. Um, and all of those things are not necessarily, um, 
taking me closer to, you know, every single one of those goals that like we, you know, the ones we talked about a little earlier. So it, it can be hard because, you know, if you have, you know, if you're awake for, you know, 12, 14 hours in a day, it may be that really only, you know, a small proportion of that I could really spend working towards directly towards, you know, one of my goals. Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, we all wake up with the same 24 hours and especially when you want to accomplish big things like um, changing the healthcare system, but you're also a mom and you're also a practicing doctor. It's like, it's just, there's a time pool. Um, so yeah. Like, for sure. Taking that time, being intentional, even five minutes a day can compound, but it is a hard thing to do because it's really easy to forget. And it's even easier to, when you have that time to take, waste it. And I don't want to say waste it because for some people it's recovery time, but have it not be exactly productive time. And yeah. so maybe the time you need to take because your day is so full is like sipping on a cup of tea and sitting in silence or reading a book, not optimizing the app, you know, <laughs> it's like that would feel like more um, burden on you. So just I understand that. And I think a lot of basically everybody struggles with it. So, yeah. You're awesome. no, you're exactly right. Yeah. Sometimes literally it is. It's like, okay, I'm I'm gonna go get some water for myself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel you. What character trait do you most need to develop right now to make your dream life come true? Oh gosh. Um I think I think I have to be a little bit better about setting boundaries. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Setting boundaries. I love it. And if there were one or two people that you could meet right now, and this could be a specific person or a type of person, and they'd really help you take the next step towards, I specifically want to hear about, um, they would help you take the next step towards getting patients better care and normalizing kind of doctors and patients connecting on a human level, being listened to and getting their diagnoses when they need it. If there are one or two people you could meet and they would help you do that, who would they be and how would they help you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, one, one person I would love to meet is Abby Wambach. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I think she was, you know, a phenomenal soccer player and she's has a podcast now too. Um, we no can do hard things. Is, by the way. But, okay. Oh, okay. Abby, I know that podcast. I know that podcast. You know, we can do hard things. Yeah. Abby Wambach's Olympic gold medalist. You know, she's, um, you know, highest all-time goal scorer for you know women's soccer yeah. I think still I think she still holds that record um and um she's written a book called Wolfpack that I really like and um I think for a time she was coaching or she, maybe she was gonna coach people um and so but I, I I think she's not anymore but when I found out that she was I kind of had this like dream in my head like oh I want to be coached by Abby Wambach I feel that I feel that so is she currently coaching people or is she not I don't think so yeah you know um you know who Alex Hormozzi is no gotcha he's a, he's like a YouTube entrepreneur guy um who also runs a lot of businesses he's not just a YouTuber <laughs> but he talks about how everything is available for a price like everybody's time is on sale. So if you hit Abby up 
and you can get her on the phone or you can email her or you could knock on her door or whatever you need to do to get FaceTime with her. Be like, hey, I would really love for you to coach me. This is how I'm trying to grow. And I think you'd be the perfect person. How much do I have to pay you an hour? Like, I would love to pay it. Yeah. As long as it's not something like $100,000 an hour, I'm sure that um, it would be beneficial to you. Yeah, I have done that. I have emailed her. <laughs> really? No response? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the general email, podcast email for We Can Do Hard Things. So I'm sure, I assume they get tons of emails. So who knows if it was really, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, if it really got into the right hands or not. But um, yeah, I, I did try. I got you. I got you. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe if I meet her one day, I'll have her on my podcast. You tell her. Yeah. You tell her for me, Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a awesome. big fan. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to jump into our thriving three. And our first question is what's your favorite book, movie, or podcast? Pick one. And if your podcast is We Can Do Hard Things, just pick one of the other two. Yeah. Um, well, one of my favorite books is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, I love it. I also I love lots of books. So um, I also like The Undoing Project, which is about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. That's by Michael Lewis. And I also really like Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Yep. Yep. I've I've read Man's Search for Meaning. I haven't read the other two. Thinking Fast and Slow has been on my reading list, but it's like 21 hours in the audible version. I'm just like, (laughs) try try The Undoing Project. It it's um. I mean, you know, one's written by Daniel Kahneman and one's about him. But Michael Lewis, have you read Moneyball? Have you read any of Michael Lewis's books? I have not read any of Michael Lewis's books. Okay. He's, um, the Undoing Project is written like a story. You know, it's nonfiction, but it's really, um, to me, it was like, it it was written like a story. You know, obviously written very, very well. Um, So it was it's really a story of friendship to me and yet you still get a lot of the concepts that are in thinking fast and slow you know because it's about their work and um so it's yeah it's a really it's a great book there we go sounds good well what is one way you like to take care of yourself kind of like you said I just try to take a little bit of time here and there that that actually I found is really renewing. I do try to sleep. Um, that's important too. Um, sometimes I am a little bit of an insomniac. I can't, I'll wake up too early, you know? Um, but um, I, I, I nowadays, one way to take care of myself is not to just be so frustrated about waking up early. I'll just try to, um, you know, make some, you know, heat up some water. I, I don't really drink coffee or tea. So just, you know, have something warm to drink. And um, lots of times I'll be able to watch the sunrise then. And so I'm just trying to, you know, turn it into something positive, you know, like, okay, I, I woke up early, but look, I can watch the sunrise and have this, you know, cup of hot water, like just in peace. Yeah, I love it. And what is one action step you can take right now or continue to take if you're already doing it too? get coached by Abby Wanback. I guess I could keep emailing. <laughs> you, could keep emailing. you know, here's another, here's another idea. It's in a book called Giftology. So read Giftology, but I'll tell you the idea anyway. He says, figure out what is really close to Abby's heart and get her a gift 
that mm. speaks to that portion of her heart and you will almost definitely get FaceTime with her because you will um, make her feel known, make her feel understood, make her feel heard. And that's all any human wants, right? So if you could do that for her or somebody she really loves, like a child she has or her spouse, maybe not her spouse, because that could get a little weird if she has a spouse. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it would just be really meaningful. And yeah. It might be a way okay. to get some FaceTime with her. That's a good idea. I'll, I'll, I'll think, I'll ponder that. For sure. All right. We got our final series of questions now. What is one limiting belief? Oh, I got to give the disclaimer. You don't have to answer these because I didn't send these beforehand. So they get a little personal. If you don't want to answer, just be like, I want to pass. And then you can go ahead and pass. What is one limiting belief that continues to pop up in your life, if any? Yeah. You know, um, I, I think it goes along with what I was saying earlier about shame. I think a lot of the times a limiting belief is you're not worthy. Yep. Yeah. That'll go through my head and maybe it's a variation. Sometimes it's like, you're not worthy. is kind of like really strong. It's sort of like a severe form, but sometimes, Oh yeah, you're not good enough for this. Or, or why would you think you'd be able to do that? You know? Um, or of course, you know, just like if I fail at something, of course, you know? Um, so just that, those kinds of thoughts um, ranging from, you know, kind of more minor like oh, of course you know you feel it to all the way like you're not worthy enough to do this you know yeah yeah that kind of thought and where does that come from um I think it's a really deep early um like bias I guess like a implicit bias almost it's sort of ingrained in me unfortunately um I think it partially comes from the fact that I'm female because um, I'm Korean I'm, and I'm Korean American, but in Korean culture, traditionally males, sons are much, much more valued. Um, in my family, it's just me and I have a sister. So even from when we're younger, I remember that I mean, my dad, it's not like he, he didn't value us, but it was kind of like, oh, you know, we only have two daughters in this family, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's like only, right. It's like, you know, so that kind of thing where the, the bias is um, so ingrained, even in the culture that it's there. Right. So I'm not saying it's like my parents fault or anything, but it's there. So I think being female and then, you know, being Asian in the U S you're, you're a minority. Right. And, and, um, and I think now there, there's labels, there's ways to talk about it, like microaggressions, you know, being one label. And I think I experienced microaggressions when I was younger and didn't, you know, have the words to be able to know what they were, um, but to be made fun of and, you know, to, to not look like everyone else. And, um, and not that this is necessarily a microaggression, but to never see anyone, on TV or in books, you know, and I, I always have loved books, you know, that was really like me. Um, you know, I think I didn't realize, I never really realized the impact that that just has on you sort of day after day, week after week, you know, year after year. And it was really only once my son was in first grade and his teacher was very much into um, displaying books and, you know, in the units that the material they covered to really try to 
um, showcase more than just one, you know, type of person, you know? Yeah. And so when I would go in to drop him off, um, I would just see all these books, you know, like, you know, I am Muslim, you know, would be one book or, you know, another book with a an Asian, you know, character on the front of it, another one with, you know, um, you know, just a whole variety. And, um, and it wasn't really until that moment, you know, right, when I'm a fully an adult, you know, I've been living many, many years. And I just realized, wow, like, it was just really different. Now, a lot of libraries, you know, do that too, right. But when I was growing up, it was just every, I, I mean, I loved certain books, but it was no one like me, you know, it's like, blonde, you know, blonde, beautiful girls, you know, I mean, I love Barbie, so it's fine with me. <laughs> but, um, you know, Barbie definitely didn't look like me. I didn't look like Barbie. Um, and now they have, you know, for, for years now, they've had Barbies that are, you know, not just traditional blonde Barbie. Um, yeah. I love traditional blonde Barbie, but that's also <laughs> it's like ingrained in me. Yeah. So I think, um, but I didn't realize, you know, it's not like I fully realized that I had this kind of, um, inner talk. And that's just been something more recently that I've come to realize. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. What actions do you have, whether it be on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis that stem from this limiting belief and reinforce it? So you have the thought, I'm not worthy. You have the shame, you feel it, and then you have actions because of it. And these actions kind of reinforce those thoughts and beliefs. Um, putting myself last stems from that. Yeah. And I think um, having, you know, read books and um, articles and listening to podcasts, you know, um, I'm realizing more and more I'm not alone, right? That's also, I think, something that is more typical of women, especially that, you know, and, and mothers, right? Um, not that men don't do it or that dads don't do it or, you know, um, um, you know, non, non-binary um, individuals. Um, but I think that the culture that I grew up in was definitely a patriarchal culture. And the whole model that I saw day in and day out was my mom, you know, was a stay at home mom, work within the house mom. And my dad worked outside the home. And it's true, she ran the household. Like that is one thing that my my dad denies that they're in a patriarchal model. He's he's sort of like, no, like she has her job and I had mine, you know. So in that sense, he he says he's very liberated, but like, you know, her job though is is, you know to serve him yeah no and um and so and now you know he's retired but she's still like he's like I'm thirsty and you know she goes and gets water or whatever and brings it to him you know and and he he doesn't do the same for her right I mean she doesn't ask I guess right so there it is again right she doesn't ask so um I've never seen my mom just sit at the table and like I'm thirsty and you know, expect water to appear in front of her. Right. So, um, and I'm not, I, I do want to, I feel, I guess I feel a little bit badly. I don't mean to be calling my dad out or a whole <laughs> culture or anything, um, or criticizing my parents. I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> sorry, mom and dad. Like, not that I, I don't think, I don't think they would listen to this, but, <laughs> um, but I, you know, it's just that that's the culture that they grew up in really, you know, like, um, if I talk to other Korean American friends, that's, that's their parents too, you know, so it's, it's normal. Um, but I guess like for me, since I grew up that way, um, I do think that's normal. And so again, that shame part, so that's the norm, that's the standard. So then if I don't get up and give my husband water, I'm falling short. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I, it's a hard, this question is always hard for the actions that reinforce it. Because it's like getting up and getting your husband water can also be a very sweet thing, but it's like, yeah. it's your intent and the place that it's coming from. And when it comes from a place of shame, I mean, I hope your husband would want you to not do something like that because doesn't want you to live in shame, but that same action could be coming from a place of love after you've like grown past it. And then it's a good thing. And so it's just, there's always a toss up with this, like the intent behind things and really understanding yourself, you know? totally no you're totally right because like I mean it's sort of also like you know when you're first dating someone right no matter what culture or background or bias you have right you're much more willing to do certain things for that person at first right and or even that like oh I love this about you and then six months pass and you're like I hate this about you right? <laughs> yeah. so I mean it's that type of thing where yeah I think you know, if it doesn't bother me, or I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm totally willing in this moment to like, go get you water, you know, so that's why also, I don't mean to criticize my own parents, I don't, you know, you never really know someone else's intent. Um, I, I do know that my mom does hold herself to that kind of standard of what she thinks the wife should be in that culture kind of that she grew up with. And she will tend to hold me to that as well. Yeah. So um, meaning that she will ask me, and I don't think she would be embarrassed for me to say this. She'll she'll ask me, oh, you know, did you cook dinner for your husband? You know, and it's never like, oh, you know, did someone cook dinner for you? You know, it's um, and, and not that she's like trying to like give me extra things to do, but she, that's her way of, showing love right to her husband and so I think it's her way of saying are you showing love to those around you mm, but sometimes when I'm tired I'm like no I I, I don't I don't want to make dinner today yeah <laughs> I want dinner to fall down from heaven and just appear <laughs> no for sure I think um those uh especially the culture clash I feel like with like even like our parents and then us right now, I feel like there's been a lot of social change in the past, like 20 years, like a lot of a social lot. change. Absolutely. And yeah. And I think that clash, like I even see it with my fiance and her mom, like her mom will call her in the evenings, which is sweet. Cause I don't even talk to my parents really, but her mom will call her. I know I'm working on it, but her mom will call her. And the first thing she'll ask about is dinner. I'm like, that's such a weird thing to ask about. Like, if anybody asked me about dinner, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what we're eating. If I get hungry, I'll maybe I'll go buy some Popeyes. Who knows? <laughs> and so it's just such an interesting and like even being in the same house with them during quarantine when COVID was really roaring. 
um, yeah, there was just some stuff that like I could see the culture clash between like now and then like a middle class Christian family that has real Christian ideals. It's like there was some patriarchal stuff that was just like it's there. Yeah. So, I don't want to Yeah, that's it. the thing too. I yeah. I grew up Christian and yeah, there's a lot of rules, right? So there's a lot of ways to feel shame. Oh yeah, for sure. A lot of falling short that can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, congratulations on being engaged. And um, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate that. Well, if there were one phrase, and I like to call this an abundant phrase, that would really speak to that limiting belief. So, if you were to change that limiting belief into an abundant phrase that really touched your heart, what would that phrase be? Um, again, I think it, it maybe sounds too simple, but I think I'll, I'll often tell myself I can do it. Yeah. You know, I just try, I can do it. And, um, that doesn't mean I successfully do it, but I'll just say, why not? You know, just, I can. Um, and you know, often I'll prove myself wrong because it, it doesn't happen, but I'm more appreciative the older I get that I have the chance to try I love that oh yeah the chance to try I um so I'm 23 recently emerged into adulthood out of college <laughs> so I've been doing this thing for about a year and a half and a lot of my friends and people who are also my age are kind of scared of adulthood but I love it. And I love it because as much as, you know, I could fall flat on my face, be broke the rest of my life and just be miserable as an adult, I could also make the life of my dreams. And like the whole world is at my feet right now. And it's the chance to try that is just so exciting for me. So I love that you said that. I, yeah, I'm with you, Timmy. Totally. Yeah, I think rather than feel stressed, right, about the potential failure or whatever, I have, I've been more and more trying, why not? Like, just, just try and like have, I, I think really, I realized, I mean, it's something that I think I, I truly learned through my son, not having any spoken language really, right, when he got the cochlear implants, and then he's over age two, and he doesn't have any spoken language, right? So he's like a newborn baby. They have something called a listening age. And so he was zero age, right? Um, when he got those cochlear, but he's really like two and two months old, two years, sorry, two years and two months old. So, right. He should have had a lot of words, right. Um, and, um, and just to see him through the therapy that it's called auditory verbal therapy that we did just try, you know, every day. And it's like, okay, you just try and try. I realized if I expect him to try and you know, you fail, but you just try again the next day, realize, you know, why not? Like if I have that kind of two-year-old mindset, right? Um, no, for sure. You know, I love it. Yeah. All right. We got one last question for you. Okay. And I want to frame this next question. Okay. <laughs> So Alex Hormozzi said that the difference between manipulation and help is intent. And I think his point here is that you're influencing people in both situations. But manipulation is about getting somebody to do something you want them to do, while help is about seeking to understand what somebody else wants and helping them get there. Now, there's a common saying, 
that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I actually found out from a guest who came on the show, Dr. Alan Leica, that you can make it drink. You just have to salt its oats. I want you to think about a person with a fixed mindset. They're not willing to accept help. They're not willing to accept change. And they hate their life. Not happy with where they are. How can we, you and I, create an environment to salt their oats and help them change their life? Hard question to me. Yes. <laughs> um, so I am against manipulation, um, if at all possible. Um, I think there's a certain amount of manipulation that I actually do try to incorporate daily in terms of trying to get my kids to do what I want them to do. I mean, they're good kids, but, you know, kids like they they don't really get to do whatever they want to do at every single moment, you know, Um so, um, but to me, I think um, helping is a giving intent and manipulation is a taking intent, right? Like I'm trying to take someone's autonomy away from them and maybe rightly so if they're like trying to harm themselves or something like that. But I think it's really hard to really control someone else. I'm more and more not sure that it's possible. So I guess my answer would be more that kind of like you implied um, in the body of that question, that I just try to create an environment um, and set an example of what I would want to happen. So hopefully, meaning hopefully by my setting my own good and correct, hopefully boundaries. And, you know, maybe even outright saying, I'm going to do this. These are my boundaries. And then, you know, you can do whatever and that hopefully my boundaries for myself will help not control or manipulate will help the other person also, then to go in the direction that maybe is needed yeah yeah no i love that i think that's i think there are like a couple of answers here and it's like that's definitely one of them you got to set an example another one could be like seek to understand that person and make them feel safe which is like part of setting an example so it doesn't really get outside of those two or three things you know i think there might be a third one that you might be able to argue for but i agree setting an example is like have you ever read that poem by Marianne Williamson, uh, Our Deepest Fear? Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, is that we are powerful beyond measure. And it goes on to say, as we let our own light shine, we give others permission to do the same, which is setting an example. So I agree. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the hard thing about it is that I don't, I don't and can't always set the best example. Um and I don't and can't always create the the safest or best environment, right? Even for my kids. Um, yeah. So especially, I think we've seen that during COVID, right? You don't you don't have control, and so some parents chose, okay, you you know you get homeschooled, right, in an attempt, right, to keep them as safe as possible. But then, you know, um, that's maybe not the best thing for them socially either, right? And so, you know, what's more important, the physical, the social, right? Social well being, physical well being. Right. There are no easy answers to these things, I think. So for sure. 
for sure. Well, awesome, Christine. Uh, you have to talk about your book before you go, actually. I don't think we've talked about the whole show. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Tell us about your book. Yeah, um, my book is called, um, as you mentioned in the beginning, How to Improve Doctor-Patient Connection Using um, Psychology to Optimize Healthcare Interactions. It's a long, bulky title, and so it sounds people have given me feedback that it just sounds like out of reach. Um, but I, I, I do think that it's readable. I think it's enjoyable. Obviously I'm biased, but it's, it's for, it's not just for doctors. I would, I would just say, please do consider reading it. If you are, you know, if you need healthcare, Timmy shared, he hasn't gone to the doc. That's okay. Right. Cause I, I do think that, you know, you're 23, you're young, you look healthy, you look like strong, you know, hopefully you, 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 you probably shouldn't really need to go to the doctor. I will admit that I didn't go to the doctor myself either for several years. <laughs> and that's not good because I'm not 23. And I, I do have <laughs> things that I need taken care of. Um, but um, yeah, I think if, if for anyone, I really wrote the book because through the healthcare interactions that we had as I was a mom, you know, patient advocate for my son, I realized that I could control, right? Help the situation, the interaction, not manipulate it, but I could set certain boundaries. I could have set a certain agenda and really help whoever we were talking to, whoever we were seeing that day to really sort of see us and hear us, right? Um, versus like, I mean, as an extreme, if I just sit there like a lump and just glare at them and they ask me questions and I just even refuse to answer, right? They th That's really hard then, right? For them to know what we need. Um, and I think the hard thing is, is sometimes I didn't know, right? Or I'm so overwhelmed by certain emotions that it's hard for me to sort of really get ahead. Or, you know, if I haven't done research or haven't had time to, I may not really know the question that I need to ask, right? So I think just really to give each other, um, whether it's a doctor-patient interaction or whether it's, you know, fiancé to fiancé, I think they're just to give each other space and grace. I think that's important. And that the book is, it focuses on doctor-patient, but that's what it's about. And I think having written it has helped me. So in a way, even though I would love it, if more people would buy it and read it, not, not cause it's going to be about profit, but because my heart is in that book. And so, you know, um, I didn't write it for no one to read it. And, um, I, I do think, I do think it would help people, especially if you have serious, um, important healthcare needs, I think it will, um, hopefully help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. You guys heard her go ahead and buy a copy of that book, share it with your friends and um, yeah, Christine, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Timmy. Of course. And thank you guys for watching. All the ways to contact her will be down in the show notes. We will see you on the next one. And we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.